I think it's really important how uh, private companies, private developers are changing the sheet music as it were in terms of trying to get other folks involved in projects and trying to bring in more um, cultural diversity, uh, more uh, more and varied and different backgrounds of professional consultants and team members. And those are things a lot of our clients, they don't have to do it. They want to do it. Welcome to Building Ideas, exceptional people discussing inspired experiences that create an enduring impact on our communities. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com. Hi, this is Bill. Welcome to the podcast today. We're glad you joined us. Here in the beginning of the new year, 2021 is looking up on many fronts. So uh, we're excited that you joined us and you appreciate all your comments, positive feedback, and ask you if you enjoy what you're hearing on the podcast, please like it on whatever respective platform you're on, forward it to a friend, let everybody know what we're trying to do, we're trying to make some positive impacts on the world around us today. Today's guest joins us from the construction and design industry. And actually is a representative of a global consulting firm, an international firm, J.S. Held. Michael Collins joins us from J.S. Held's Cincinnati office. While at J.S. Held, Michael has worked as a principal in charge, project executive, pre-construction manager, project manager, project engineer, and designer for local, regional, and national ownership groups. He's been an owner's advocate for his entire professional career, a rarity in his workspace, working both in-house and as a third-party consultant. He's developed and led the owner's representation practice for J.S. Held for the last 12 years. He has two decades of experience in the design and construction industry. Michael hails from the west side of Cincinnati and is a sixth generation of his family to live in the western side of Queen City. And those of you who know the Queen City know that the west side folks are deep roots, deep families, and good connections, hardworking folks who um, do business on a handshake, and that's what I love about working with them. He is a graduate of the Great Oaks Career System, Cincinnati State, home of the Surge, and the University of Cincinnati, home of the Bearcats. He is a proud husband and father, a great human being. He'll talk today about his passion for craftsmanship, his passion for the psychology of what he does, and also his great respect for the design profession and the built professions so welcome to today's exceptional person, Michael Collins. And you've had a really interesting journey. We've talked a lot of, about it over the time. We've worked together on a number of projects. So why don't you just give us a little background of how Michael Collins ended up in the place he is today? <laughs> well, with the help of a lot of people, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I am, I'd be remiss not to mention that I am a West Sider through and through. Um, <laughs> It's a topic that uh, comes up frequently, and I hold it dear to my heart. So we're sixth generation on the west side, um, probably within a five five mile radius. So that's uh, been a huge impact, you know, for my personal and professional development. Being very much uh, a midwestern guy, and uh, you know, also a very small town guy, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I grew up, um, you know, going through. Catholic schools, very tight-knit community, playing sports, uh, being involved in just about everything I can, turned to music in high school, and uh, 
kind of whittled down the sports to just baseball for quite some time and had a, uh, a great family presence with uh, my grandfather who was fortunate enough to retire early. So he was kind of there for everything and, uh, you know, mentored and fostered along the way. Um, that led me to uh, an interesting career or college path, educational path, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, I am a product of vocational education out of Diamond Oaks uh, for the mm. computer-aided drafting program, which in the mid-90s, I was convinced I was going to be an architect, but um, I soon, soon later, yeah, probably not where I wanted to be once I started <laughs> doing it. Um, and then that that took me to Cincinnati State and then on to the University of Cincinnati, where um, I, I met quite a few um individuals within the professional workspace as an intern or co-op, depending on where you're at and what you call it and the verbiage. Yeah. Uh, and those internships were key, I, I think, to where I ended up today because they were as um, a position of working for ownership for um, large uh, Fortune 500 companies or large healthcare systems. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing to be able to say to clients and the people on our team here at JS Held, um, I, I've been an owner's rep since college, which, mm. uh, you know, it, it's definitely a different thing to be able to say, because oftentimes in, in my profession, uh, folks are either disenfranchised architects or designers or a uh, project executive, maybe for a construction firm that decided they didn't want the, the pressures of being in a trailer you know, for two years at a time on a project. Um, but it's where I started. It's where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a, a pretty uh, sizable team of, of highly qualified professionals here uh, in Cincinnati. Was there a moment as you're going through your education process, you know, at the Oaks and then through Cincinnati State and you see where you kind of, the light went on with owner's representation? Like, can you, a few classes or moments when you're like, man, this is really a, something I could get into? Yeah, absolutely. I would say um, at the time I was uh, working for a healthcare system, Southwest Ohio, and I worked uh, for a gentleman named Rob Baker. He's up uh, city of Kettering now, but Rob was a fantastic uh, mentor and one of my first, you know, defined professional mentors. Um, he he transitioned into that owner's rep role uh, and took me to that healthcare systems provider. And during about my senior year in college, I was faced with, um, you know, entering the real world and what did that want to be? So I had an adjunct professor who was um, overseeing my capstone course at uh, UC. His name was Eric Coles. And uh, I went to Eric for advice and he ended up saying, you know, hey, why don't you come work for us? We're uh, starting to offer more of this independent owner's rep services. Um, so it was definitely appealing. And um, Eric's a fantastic guy and ended up uh, eventually down the road, become business partners with him for a period of time. Huh. It's funny how that works. And you know, in addition to the couple of those guys, Rob and Eric, and obviously your grandfather, were there any other key folks along the journey through your educational or life that really helped, you know, inspired you or put you down this path? Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely. It's college for me was, um, an interesting experience. I worked two or three jobs. I, I gigged on the weekends. Um, so I was kind of in and out for classes. So I didn't have a lot of that traditional college experience where you develop long-standing relationships with friends and whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. the, the relationships I took away from college were really at the, uh, the, the instructor or professor level. And uh, we had uh, our dean at the time, uh, Dr. Ben Uwakwe, 
was a, a very strong uh, uh, and opinionated uh, instructor, but he uh, paid attention to the details and was absolutely challenging. And I figured by the time I got to my fifth year at UC and it was time to move on to bigger and better things, I finally figured out how to uh, to to meet those expectations that he set. And all those years of frustration, of being pissed off, like you wouldn't imagine, of you know, what do you got to do to please this guy? Come to realize, you know, 20 years out, it's simple, basic stuff that, you, you know, as a young adult, you needed to know how to do, pay attention to his instructions and meet deadlines, show up to time. The guy would lock the door to his classroom at eight o'clock on the dot. And you know, how many times people's faces looking through that window. Now, I'm not saying I'm the most punctual person, but it, it did instill some some pretty strong life uh, lessons there. So from time to time, at least once, at least one time you were on the outside looking in, right? <laughs> More than once. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So, um, talk about the appeal. You know, I, I'm in the industry. I have a general idea of what you guys do most of the time, you know, cause we're, we deal with folks like yourselves and you guys frequently. Talk a little bit about what that owner's representation is when people hear that, just so folks who may don't, don't know and understand. Yeah, no, that's it's a good question and, and it's a good story to tell. 10, 15 years ago, the concept of having an independent owner's representative was not you know, widely accepted or widely known throughout the Midwest. Common practice in the Northeast, Southeast, you know, the, uh, the West Coast, for quite some time, probably coming out of the uh, the 80s, early 90s. But here in the Midwest, it was relatively uh, a new concept. Um, you know, it was something where, well, we have our contractor, we have our architect. Why, why do we need this additional position or this additional resource? And I think you can agree as projects have become more complicated, not only in how they get financed and put together, how they get zoned and entitled, they're absolutely more complicated with their building systems, their details, um, you know, their their building envelope and how the the entire thing comes together from a physical standpoint. And oftentimes it was a lack of technical expertise on the owner side where mm -hmm. they would get into trouble on certain projects. So, yeah, it, it was. Frankly, the, the way we grew our practice was um, through a lot of referrals for folks that had really bad experiences on construction projects or design projects. And, um, you know, the other significant portion of our service that we have here at JS Held is construction claims and lit uh, litigation and dispute resolution, which is not a fun thing to talk about. But, but, um, so we would have a lot of clients saying, okay, I just went through that process and I don't want it to happen again. How do we avoid some of this? And then that's when it went from, you know, two people uh, on our team to three people to four people to 15 people, uh, yeah. you know, over the last few years. And do you see that demand continuing? I mean, even through COVID, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but do you see that demand stopping? Do you see it tapering? Do you see it adjusting? So I see um, the volume of work in the marketplace is adjusting, uh, and I think that that is somewhat COVID-related. But the need for and the inquiries and the requests for owners' reps uh, is increasing. Again, you know, back to the the way these buildings, these deals, the built environment is progressing. It's a lot more complicated now, and uh, it used to be 15, 20 years ago. You're uh, C-suite told, you know, the COO that, hey, we need new facilities here. They left that 
board meeting and they went out into the marketplace and they found their architect and then they they drew some things up and they bid it out and then that that c-suite reported back to the board you know you know once a month well unfortunately the way budgets are now the way the funding sources are now there's a lot more reporting requirements there's a lot more sophistication that's out there um so they don't have that ability to be as hands-off anymore they're kind of forced by the very nature to be involved and when they reach that understanding that's when they realize hey we need to bring in somebody specific for this project or this capital expenditure that can speak the language understands that i mean let's face it in in a construction uh project you do have a cohesive team and hopefully that team is functional in its communication but at the very bottom of it it's about managing divergent interest there mm-hmm. as much as we don't like to say that out loud from a design standpoint, a construction standpoint, and then from our uh, aspect of activating an asset, there is some level of divergent interest. And our job is to manage that, to make sure that all those project participants are able to communicate in an effective manner and really move the project along. You'll hear us say that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, It's not about me, it's not about Bob or Sally or Sarah, it's about the project. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> from you. <laughs> no, that's right. I think that's a good, um, I think that's a great assessment for the lay folks. And, and, you know, we certainly, and we've talked about this offline, especially with, um, like you say, complex owner groups, right? It's no longer just John says, build me a new warehouse. It's a board that's a subsidiary of another corporation that's, you know, funded by an outside, you know, <laughs> equity fund. <laughs> or it's a public institution or a private institution that has boards and trustees. And so yeah. I think it may, makes a lot of great sense to, to, you know, to help. And you know, we encourage many of our clients to use, you know, owner's representation because it makes a lot of sense. So yeah. the, the term owner's rep, and I'm sure, you know, especially early on in the design phase, it's almost interchangeable with, you know, project, project psychologist or, <laughs> you know, project counselor. Um, <laughs> Because there are so many things, if you don't do this every day, there's so many things that come up that seem like huge roadblocks um, where if you have a a trusted advisor as your owner's rep and you have that level of communication with your design and construction partner, it doesn't need to be a roadblock. It's just, you know, it's let's take a little detour, figure a way around it and and move on. It's a step in the journey, right? It's just a part of the process. Yep. So the past 10 months now have been one hell of a journey for everybody, right? Yeah. Um, Tell me what you have learned. Um, this can be you, meaning held, you as a profession, you as Mike from the West Side. Yeah. Um, what have you learned in the past 10 months? Well, uh, whatever uh, the hell it's been, I don't know at this point. It's, it's all blended together. Five years. I don't know, man. <laughs> um, I'll hit that on three fronts. You know, one is that, um, you know, working from home is definitely different. Uh, but I would say the, the silver lining is it has been absolutely fantastic to be able to spend as much time as I have with uh, my wife, Brittany, and, and our three kids. Um, at times, it has its challenges, right? You know, especially when they get home from school and, you know, things kind of change. But um, it's been awesome, you know. Yeah. So that's the silver lining and that's the, the positive component. Um, as, a, as a manager and a leader for our, our North American practice, uh, I spent so long being convinced that the only way we could be productive and collaborative as a team is being in the office to the uh-huh. point where, 
you know, for a lot, a lot of years, folks would say, you know, hey, can I work from home, you know, a couple of days a week? And it was before he could finish the sentence. My answer was no. We all must be here unless we're on a project site because this is how we collaborate. What I now understand is I was saying this is how I collaborate. So mm. I've learned, um, you know, that position of mine has changed. But we talk a lot about meeting our clients where they are meeting, you know, the design team or the contractor that we're working with where they are in a particular issue. I feel very confident now that after the last 10 months, 12 months, we're able to meet our team members where they are. And it, mm -hmm. it's really been amazing to see how we really haven't missed a step in terms of delivering, you know, uh, unparalleled services to our clients and being able to manage our projects, uh, working from home and, and selectively visiting job sites when needed. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's been it's been different. It's proved me wrong on a couple of things, and, and it's uh, you know it's had some definite uh, benefits as well. A little humble pie never hurt every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, a couple of people on our team will be the first ones to tell me that. <laughs> constantly, they'll probably be shapping everybody, right? And all those guys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, um, so how? I mean, we know the the industry took a little shutter. I think fortunately here, at least in our region, I know you guys are national, but we were able to continue building, right? Our government didn't stop that. And I've mm -hmm. had peers and I'm sure you have in areas where they stopped it and it was devastating. Yeah. But how, how is this going to change project delivery or will it, or will we just kind of roll back once everybody gets shots and moves forward? <laughs> um, well, you know, on a, on a couple of fronts, March of last year, for our uh, Northeast practice, which is headquartered out of Manhattan, we're on, on Wall Street, uh, every project that we're working on from a project management standpoint, owner's rep, stopped. <sighs> so hospitality projects, um, self-storage projects, uh, urban infill and adaptive reuse, all those projects came to a grinding halt within about two weeks. And it was very, um, very challenging. But part of being a Midwest guy is we also know that we're a little isolated here and you know, it, it was a Mark Twain who said everything happens here 10 years later or something yeah. to that effect. Fly um, over country, baby. Fly over country. We love you it. know what? <laughs> There's a lot of business to be, be done in that fly over country. Down here in the valley where it's steamy and you can't find <laughs> us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. Um, so we've been able to maintain, you know, regionally throughout the Midwest and in and, and the Southeast. Um, we're going to see a different model of how these projects come to market and not in the traditional project delivery sense of construction manager at risk, general contractor, design build um, type of arrangement, but more so how the deals are coming together and the cash requirements from owners uh, through, you know, their equity position as they work to develop their financing. So what does that mean for folks like me and you and, and you know, the, the contractors of the world? It means a couple of different things. One, the ability to invest in the pre-development efforts of a project will be impacted because it's going to um, greatly depend on the financial institution or the financial packages put together on how much of that pre-development work counts as equity to a certain mm -hmm. degree. Yep. Um, and it will also change the way that um, projects are coming to market. And what I mean by that is oftentimes we would be able to go through a project and have 
an early package, uh, a uh, you know site enabling package or a utilities package, and then followed up by a foundations package. I've seen lenders paying a lot more attention to the way we are engaging in buying work uh, over the last six to 10 months than I have in the last 20 years. All that comes back to um, the way that projects go to market and the way our ownership groups uh, interact with their financing sources. There's a bigger magnifying glass than ever. They're required to have more upfront cash or equity into the deals. But when things go astray, where one portion of the project may cost more, take longer than another, um, we're seeing a lot of forced uh, loan rebalancing in the marketplace. So it's it's interesting to see how that works. To I had a, a really great client of ours said, you know, for the last 10 years, we've been doing whatever the hell we wanted to, and now they're finally paying attention. <laughs> Fair enough. Party's <laughs> over, ladies and gentlemen. Party's over. Yeah, a little bit more oversight. How do you guys see, uh, and I because I know you're a national, international corporation, how do you see who's going to rebound the best? I mean, what regions are positioned for success? I mean, I think obviously the South, right, because people are moving to the Sun Belt. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what are some trends you're seeing nationally as far as the market and opportunities and who's better than others? Yeah, I would say um, we uh, in the Midwest and, and into the Southeast are – best position for a, a quicker bounce back. And now when we're talking market activity as a whole, um, the Northeast will be uh, slow to come back, but those projects you know, in comparison are so large generally that yeah. you know there's a lot more volume up there. So it changes that dynamic. Um, but I would say that the, the West Coast is, is probably going to be lagging behind along with the East Coast coming back to market to, to full steam. You know, interestingly enough, you know, some of our indicators are leading indicators that we look at are, you know, like AIA billings index. Um, sure. We look at, you know, some of the uh, the AIA financials and inquiries and things of that nature. Um, I believe it was December was down to, uh, you know, uh, in, in general terms of 43.6. And yeah. that's down, you know, a few points from November. And that, you know, that's not promising. But it is promising to see some of those other statistics that the AIA collects that says inquiries are up. So yeah, that's absolutely that's a long way to say owners are asking for uh, what it costs to draw more stuff or plan more stuff. They just don't have the funds to, uh, to build really it. Break free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we've even anecdotally seen it. And I've talked to peers across the country, you know, classmates, friends. And I think you're spot on. The folks in the southeast here in the Midwest were res- surprisingly resilient. I think people look past us and don't realize, but mm-hmm. I mean, folks in the Northeast and certainly the West coast is it's, it's pretty tough to hear their stories. And, you know, we have some former employees in the East coast and we've kind of seen them shift around and it's a great time to be in flyover country, my friend. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now that we get sports coming back, it'll be, oh, we're all fine. Um, all right. One of the things I like to talk about is inspired experiences. So, What's a key place, space, or experience in the built environment that has inspired you, Michael Collins, pride of the <laughs> West Side? Oh, well, that's that's too gracious. Um, in the the built environment is one. Uh, um, it's a little tricky because I'm not coming at it from a design perspective um, or, or a contractor. <laughs> I'm coming at it from an end user, truly. So I get to look sure. at it completely different, other than. You know, how the heck did they pay for that or, you know, how do they assemble the capital stack? Um, for me, 
what inspiring moments have really come about has been anywhere um, where I truly feel as if the the building or the structure that I'm in is guiding me through it. And, you know, I've heard in the past that good architecture will move people through a building or a development and you won't know it. Um, and the art, the practice of architecture may be the art of moving people, um, which I would say anywhere um, here locally, such as Union Terminal is, is fantastic. Um, you know, you can stand there and look around and see a lot of really cool stuff. It's very appealing to the eye, but um, just being there with my family as pre-COVID, um, there was a, a sense of ease and flow that, yeah. you know, it was not an, an obstruction to us enjoying the experience. Um, similarly, some of the projects that we've worked on in the past at Cincinnati Shakespeare uh, Company's building was one that you felt at home. You felt comfortable because of uh, the sight lines. You knew exactly, before you even got into the the performance space, you knew exactly where things were. I have three kids, you know, that are with me all the time and my wife and understanding where where the outs are, where the restrooms are, um, you know, those types of things. And it sounds so small, right? Um, Not when you're a parent. How, yeah, <laughs> but that's how everybody interacts with the built environment sure. um, to a certain degree. Uh, it's all relationship-based and, and familial-based to that, uh, that standpoint. I would say I just went through probably one of the most beautiful buildings that I have in a long time that is uh, slated for a historic renovation just this morning. And it was uh, something that was definitely inspiring uh, in the sense that, uh, again, I'm not looking at it from an architectural standpoint or, or a contractor standpoint. I'm looking at it from the pure amount of man hours, blood, sweat, and tears that went into building, you know, cast iron railings that go at every steel window opening in a limestone facade. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's inspiring to me because those beautiful elements that we all love to look at and we love to uh, see in architectural digest and things of that nature, to me that represents 200 hours of somebody paying their paying their way for their family to su support and provide for their family. So looking at it a little bit differently, my my dad was. Um, in the automotive trades, and I know as a kid, um, you know, the guy would work 100 hours a week in every mm -hmm. every job that most people looked away from. Um, you know, he said, well, heck, there's, you know, that's an opportunity to provide for my family. And when you see that is part of the built environment and yeah. truly understand it goes beyond the person who drew it, the person who paid for it, but the person that made it, um, that's inspiring to me. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's one of the things I love about being in this part of the country. You know, I've lived in other areas, Southeast and West that are relatively new as far. I mean, there's older stuff, but you know, but <laughs> to see the craftsmanship, you know, and we're blessed here in the city and even folks in Columbus are, you know, there's these old, there's old world craftsmanship that even in a building that now wouldn't have anything near it. Right. Mm -hmm. But you look at a railing, you look at a detail and you're like, man, that took a craftsman who probably came from, in our case, Germany or Ireland, you know, around yep. here. Probably Germany, the Irish guys were out digging the ditches, um, but, you know, had that craftsmanship and you can say you're, you're spot on. Like I think of all the buildings in town or, or even the picture behind you, the Brooklyn bridge, you know, walking across that and just realizing the, the, you know, the craftsmanship that we've lost some of, but you know, we're getting some of it back with automation and other things. So. Yeah, no, That's it's awesome. absolutely there. You look at, you know, when I, when I dig into the details of a project and we're evaluating maybe a, a construction manager, 
um, you know, depending on the project and the ownership group, sometimes we'll ask for example, um, labor hour loaded schedules, resource loaded schedules. Um, it's data. You can do with data what you will. But one thing that's always amazing to me is when you sit back and you look at this $50 million renovation of a courthouse, um, you know, in XYZ city, and there's 958,000 hours of labor. And to me, that just, a lot of people gloss over that, but that 958,000 hours of labor is countless families who rely upon that work for those folks doing those trades. Um, and, and it makes an impact, you know, not just on the people doing the work, but their families. So, um, you know, it's interesting because in those scenarios, you can really see how many man hours go into something or woman hours. Um, yeah. But the, there's a story behind every one of those hours. That's what I find inspiring. Yeah, and I think like you talking about your dad, you know, in my mind, I've always been fascinated with folks in the automotive trades, how it's such an art form that, you know, I love all the Netflix shows and all those different, I mean, it's just, I've, a good friend of mine helped me rebuild a 66 Valiant 20 years ago. I have no, I'm a, such a butterhead, but it was, but there's such a craftsmanship to that. Mm-hmm. And even now with the, with this computerized, just to see men and women who do that, like when we've done work at the Oaks and periodically over the years i've gone through some of the shops and just to see them like taking a bunch of high school kids taking apart a car and re- it's it's awesome and it is. um it is it's really amazing and um yeah that's it's so cool like nine hundred fifty-eight thousand hours that's what how many years is that right two thousand <laughs> two thousand hours a year you divide that 958 by two that's 18 years of people yeah working on one building 18 18 year people yeah yeah <laughs> so um is there, have you ever traveled anywhere and been inspired by something you've seen in the built environment? You guys have a place you like um, to go or a city or, you know, it's, natural um, before I met my wife, traveling for me was packing a book bag, getting in the Jeep and getting lost in the woods for three or four days at a time. Um, my wife has, uh, opened my eyes a little bit to, uh, what we call our coastal travels as it were. But um, by and large, it's a lot of time in the southeast, uh, whether it's in the Carolinas, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, Indian Rocks Beach, Florida. So mm-hmm. not necessarily areas that lend themselves to, uh, you know, experiments or uh, great testaments to the built environment. Um, but uh, one of our local places that we like is uh, French Lick and, and just uh, mm-hmm. being yeah. there to spend some time. Um, and it's, it's uh, a beautiful place. And again, it, my wife makes fun of me to a certain degree, but I could not get over, uh, how much effort went into building, uh, the great rotunda out there. So I was, yeah. I had my head down the whole time reading the stories and the plaques, whereas she had her head up the whole time looking at the, the beautiful yeah. ceilings. <laughs> you know, I had a chance to go through that, um, right when it was getting restored about 15 years ago when, you know, when they redid them, when the gaming came in. And I remember walking through the big one with the rotunda, you know, it was still had that shabby patina and walked through a couple of floors, but it was just, even when it, you know, the paper was peeling and the plaster was cracked and just, again, it's one of those craftsmanship. It's such an amazing space that nobody outside the Midwest really knows about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they're incredible. Those two hotels and, and the little train that goes between them and all that, <laughs> all the tchotchkes. And that's great. Absolutely. Um, Okay, what are some trends you're starting to see affect the built environment? Um, you know, we are seeing, uh, you know, from a system standpoint, the the ever uh, present drive to become more energy efficient 
has uh, changed mechanical systems and how they are approached and evaluated. Um, what it's also doing is creating a trend where building envelopes for new buildings are a lot tighter. Um, and by that, we are then seeing a lot of traditional building materials that are still installed in buildings that have been time-tested, trusted materials, you know, for a hundred years, but not necessarily in such a, an otherwise pressurized, clean or dry environment. So some of the trends that we're seeing in the built environment is a push towards ownership groups having their own independent, um, not just uh, commissioning agents, but building envelope consultants yeah. uh, to, to truly understand, you know, what it's going to look like, how the building is going to react, how the details that are proposed by the designers are, are going to impact the overall serviceability and, and interior conditions of the, uh, the space. And it's important to note that that is just as important on you know, a, a high school building or an office building or, uh, you know, 40 story office tower. There's mm -hmm. so much of that efficiencies that we try to push into our projects um, from our MEP systems. And I think now we're seeing what that means to the building envelope and how that comes into play. So I would say out of the, I believe we have about uh, 126 active projects in North America, I would say probably 100 of them have an independent building consultant. Mm. That, that just impresses the envelope. That's an interesting term. We actually have started to, on several projects, some, especially the more complex ones, right? That are, mm -hmm. we have started to be consider or even bringing on, we have, we have a firm in Colorado we've used it's a structural engineer facade guys. Mm -hmm. We've actually even brought that in on our own, just mm -hmm. out of our dime. And just even if they don't do a whole lot, we'll, um, you know, some recent projects up, you know, large institutional projects in town. We've done some of that. Some we've worked with you on. We've just said, Hey, literally pass the drawings at periodic paces. You know, how are we thinking about openings and closures, transitions, expansion, you know, and it's, and it's a hell of a lot more complicated than even when you and I got started, you know, we're comparable <laughs> age, you know, 20, 25 years ago, it was back, you know, slap cavity wall block, you know, make the flashing big enough and let it leak out and it's fine. But it, uh, yeah, it's a, that's a, it's a great observation on the trend. And I think, you know, it makes the buildings better. And my hope is we can see the aesthetic of traditional materials that people like, um, achieve through modernization of those materials. If you know what I mean, like, you know, advances and how they're comprised, assembled, absolutely they show up completely differently now than it was 80 years ago. Right. Oh yeah. But it looks the same, right? You can look yeah. at it and say, oh, look, there's terracotta. But, and it's used in different ways too now, right? Yeah, it's definitely, you know, I'd be remiss to say, you know, a, a big portion of our business and, and how we grew the owner's rep practice was from learning those mistakes from others have made on, on projects that were troubled. <laughs> um, but that's part of, you know, we're not attached to a brokerage. We're not you know, we're not a commodity that's bolted on to another service deal that is, you know, embedded into a financial transaction. When folks engage JSL, they're engaging us because they understand there's a need for that technical experience and that trusted advisor. They, they're willing to pay for it and they value that role um, stepping in for that project for that piece of time that they're going to be, you know, in the trenches, as it were, within a capital project. Um, but we are seeing a lot of new faces on those those project teams and outsourced consultants and other others that are coming to the table. And it's been 
really interesting, um, you know, over the last, I would say, especially the last five years to see how mm-hmm. this come together. And, uh, you know, some of the specialty consultants, um, you know, there's some very defined niches in our world that aid in the operations of the built environment um, that I didn't even know there were consultants for. Um, now, as part, <laughs> part of JS Held, I tell you what, you know, we send out a, an email and I, generally speaking, we got somebody that can cover just about anything. Um, <laughs> but in the odd chance that we don't, there is, you know, there's a, a supersonic milkshake uh, food and beverage consultant in Texas. It's all they do, you know. So it's it's kind Are of you neat. serious? Yeah, there's those types of things all over the place you would <laughs> never have thought to think of. But you're starting to see those things, you know, pop up. Some of our larger food and beverage products, you know, I didn't I didn't know there was a banana consultant. That's a thing. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Right. Our banana consultants. I'm sure all our folks in the food service are like, oh, yeah. You know, Kroger folks are like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely. We got a whole wing for that. There's a whole floor of the building. Um, they have a whole different terminology for it, but I just yeah. boil it down to what it is. Call it what it is. It's a bunch of Midwestern guys trying to get things built and drawn. Um, yeah. One of the areas I like to talk about is enduring impact. So you've had a long journey in this profession, you know, from a established deep family roots on the west side of Cincinnati, which is um, probably one of the greatest things about that part of the city is just the deep connections. A lot of you folks, and like, I always joke with you, but you know, I, it's yeah. great to work with folks on the West side cause you're small town folks, like folks like myself from other places. So Michael Collins, what have you learned or seen in your career that could help other organizations or individuals have an impact? That is, um, I think it boils down to the mentality of, um, trying to develop the others around you. Now I'll say, you know, from a personal standpoint and working with teams, how to help some of our folks and our, our team that are coming up through the ranks to have an impact. It's really being there and being able to foster their, their curiosity and guide them through a particular process. That's going to be the greatest way that I can have impact on those folks, you know, within our organization and even outside and project teams. But then if, if they feel that same impact, then they're going to carry it forward. And that's part of the continual evolution of, um, you know, impacting others and, and bring them along with you. Uh, from an organization standpoint, I think it's really important how uh, private companies, private developers are changing the sheet music, as it were, in terms of trying to get other folks involved in projects and trying to bring in more um cultural diversity, uh, more uh, more and varied and different backgrounds of professional consultants and team members. And those are things, a lot of our clients, they don't have to do it. They want to do it. It's um, it, It's been an interesting thing, I would say, over the last five to seven years where we see that, but it makes a an impact in our industry because oftentimes it gives those folks that are of a different geographical or cultural background, um, the opportunity to explore things that otherwise, just because they didn't know anybody, you know, that worked in that field, the opportunity to get involved in, in that capacity. The, the biggest impact that I see is when those organizations have, uh, every organization has a mission statement, right? And yeah. stated values. Um, but the ones that actually are out there living them are, are hugely impactful because it carries through all the way down to the projects that we're working on. Um, mm-hmm. We have some clients 
where you know during the pre-construction phase or the design development phase they start every meeting reminding everybody sitting at that table what their corporate values are and that's huge it makes mm -hmm. an impact for everybody there because it's carried down all the way through the development and the investment yeah that's key what for you is the dream project to be an owner's rep on no budget limits no geographical limits <laughs> well I would say right there, I'm kind of uh, pushed to skew in the sense that there's no budget, then I am completely outside my comfort zone. I know, but, I know. <laughs> but that being said, it's it's a large scale um, historic renovation. Uh, it could be hospitality, it could be you know performance space, it, it could be you know educational. But I think for me, it comes back to um, when we develop traction as an owner's rep practice in the Midwest. We were working with a, uh, a quasi uh, public private developer here in Cincinnati, 3CDC. We've been very yeah. blessed to have been involved in so many projects with them and getting a, a sense and a touch and a feel of flavor of redeveloping a neighborhood has been huge impact on me personally. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's been a great experience. 20 years ago, I never thought I would have had an interest in historic renovation or preservation. Um, 12 years ago, it became very obvious to me to, um, to continue to grow in the Cincinnati market. I had to you know, get behind that and understand what it means, and now I'm completely enamored. So that's a long-winded way of saying, um, you know, getting involved in, in a very large historic project, whether it's a, you know, a federal project, uh, you know, a federal courthouse, or um, you know, a federal monument, something along those lines. Uh, anything that's old and took a hell of a lot to, of work to build, um, is something I'm interested in being involved in continuing the legacy of all those people that put those hours in to do it the first time. Mm, that's great. I'll tell you a funny story along those lines. So my family's generally East coast, West coast. My parents, they came to Ohio when I was a baby for various reasons. My wife's family's Midwestern German. Mm -hmm. So I was doing some genealogy a few years ago, kind of tracking everybody down. And at one point, both my wife and I had ancestors who came because there's a, a branch of my mom's family that came from Indiana and Ohio. At one point within a year or two of each other, we both had ancestors who were in over the Rhine. And those buildings were buildings that are now still there mm. and have been restored. Like one yeah. was on Elm Street and another was a few blocks away. But I remember looking it up and you now you find the records through ancestry and you're like, oh, Elm. And it's one of them's a few, like a block or two up from Zula, right? You literally. And it's, it's amazing, you know, by restoring that neighborhood, people who don't know about it um, from when I first came to town 20 some years ago. And, you know, obviously from when you were a kid, right? It's yeah. completely different. I mean, there's Absolutely. no question. But every one of them has a story to tell. And, and you know, the, the creation of those buildings, you know, fed families for, you know, miles around, as it were. Absolutely. All right. I got two left field questions for you I didn't tell you about. All right. <laughs> So I know we had, I had a little bit of a surprise in a recent, we were talking about something related to a job and I found out that you, when you were a younger lad or maybe still were involved in music production, <laughs> yeah. it may have been a roadie at some point. Is that correct? Oh my goodness. You know what? It would have been a lot less pressure if I was the roadie, but I was actually the talent. So you were the talent. Yeah. That's the greatest uh, concert you ever part of <laughs> the greatest show. You were well, boring. so. We didn't, I didn't ask what, what you played. I knew you were out. I knew you were out there. 
Right. Yeah. Um, I, I would say, let me first answer the greatest show that I've ever been to has been a Foo Fighters show of which I had no other part other than being a very active participant. Um, but tough. that being said, uh, you know, Good. within within our time, um, enter, <laughs> entertaining the masses, it was uh, myself and and some buddies through high school and college. We probably played about 500 shows. Um, but uh, more along the lines of your uh, Thursday, Friday, you know, college night and then uh, a feature on a Saturday night at various clubs. Yeah. Did you hit Uncle Woody's or Sudsy Malone's at all up on the hill? <laughs> we spent quite a bit of time in those different things. <laughs> and I tell you, they were all surprised when I came in with the shiny ID that said I was 21 because I've been there for years. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you Westsiders, you guys learn how to do that early. You know how to switch. Um all right, I know you're a big Reds fan, right? West Sider, Reds fan. What's the greatest Reds moment you've been a part of? Oh, goodness. Um, I know it's been lean in the past 15 years, but let's, you know, <laughs> it's been 15, tough. 20 years. And, and because I'm a West Sider, I'm, I'm obliged to, you know, mention Pete Rose in the conversation on the field activities. Um, that was a, a big influence in our house when I was a kid, you know, on yeah. the, the big red machine and, and whatnot. I would say my biggest Reds moment um, – you know, was being able to watch the Reds, you know, sweep the A's in a World Series. Um, yeah. that, that was a big deal. Um, you know, at that point in time, baseball was life um, and, and nothing else really got in the way of it. But uh, that that's still huge. I, I remember I feel like I remember almost every every major play of that series. Yeah, that was a great moment. And hopefully things are looking <laughs> up for our red legs. We get our pitching and hitting aligned in the same year and we're moving in the right direction. We're excited. I tell you, Always an opportunity to advance, right? Always an opportunity to advance. Well, um, Michael, thanks so much for being on the podcast. This is its always a good time to break bread virtually here <laughs> and talk and uh, um, good nuggets of wisdom. So thanks for all you do for us and then um, for giving us some of your time. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Building Ideas is presented by MSA Design. To learn more about MSA Design, visit us on the web at www.msaarch.com.